Today's scripture reading is from Revelations 19, 6 through 10. I will be reading out of the New International Version. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I tell you what, I never enjoy church more than when our youth are involved. Never. We really appreciated your your music and your ministry. I've been teaching on uh, the church and the many things that the church gets to do that individuals don't. That, That what the power of our corporate presence means and what the power of being together as a body is all about. We've talked about many things, but I'm not going to recap them all because at this point, the sermon series has been so long that it would take half of my sermon time to recap everything again. So I'm going to go back to last week a little bit and say that I, uh, as an extension of this, wanted to talk about the church's remnant. Now this evokes for people usually, Adventist people, immediately a fairly strong response fairly strong response. Because either you have this sort of uh, sense of something that historically an idea you've been pulled to, or you have something that you have struggled with or even been offended by. And there's a polarity there within uh, our our people. And in the last, I want to say 12 years, maybe it's been more like 15 uh, I know the church has published at least two different books on the subject, one by uh, Provencia and one by Goldstein. So there's plenty of, of reading to do out there if you want to read. But I think uh, the most powerful suggestion I've made to you about all this is to simply do a biblical word study uh, of remnant. And when you do that, you're going to find that, that remnant is a concept that is rich and full in the Old Testament and should intimate for us Uh, things that we don't always draw from uh, a sort of distilled, proof-texted summary uh, that has made its way into doctrinal thinking. Let me recap that for you, though. I talked last week about how the, the tendency of people in formulating idea or doctrine is to pull... Uh, here from, here, from here and from there various texts and assemble them in such a way as to make a point. And the idea that came, uh, came out of that, or the doctrine that came out of that, looked something like this. You take Revelation 12, verse 10, and you connect it to Revelation... Or do I have that right? Is it 12.10? I better make sure I've got my... Somebody will email me, or, or... No, it's 17. Thank you, I'm glad I checked. 12.17, and then it's uh, Revelation 19.10. We connect those two, and then we move immediately to Revelation 14, and we put all that together uh, textually to make up a doctrine of remnants. So you have in Revelation 12.10, 
uh, I mean twelve seventeen, you have these words. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make more against the remnant of her seed, those who obey God's commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now that's a sort of hybrid between the NIV, which I have here, and, and my memory of the King James. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. Then in Revelation 19.10 we read that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we put two and two together and conveniently come up with this. The commandments are universally kept in Christendom except for the fourth. So the remnant will have the characteristic of keeping the fourth commandment. So Sabbath becomes elevated to a place of great importance. And they'll have the spirit of prophecy. And that then becomes uh, very interesting because uh, Ellen White's writings became known in the church as the spirit of prophecy. And instead of saying Ellen White wrote or... Uh, in Desire of Ages, we read where, where she said something about this and this in terms of a dialogue or discourse. We simply say the spirit of prophecy. And so the spirit of prophecy in our group became equated with the fulfillment of, of this prophecy in Revelation 19:10. And so what other church had the spirit of prophecy, had the Sabbath? Uh, none. So as long as you were part of the club, Welcome to the club you were in. You were going to be part of the remnant. And then we uh, felt even better about ourselves by adding in the remnant message, the three angels of Revelation 14, 6. The first angel saying, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Aha! The remnant people will be proclaiming a message about coming back to the true worship of God, which occurs on Saturday. And then you have... Uh, the creation invoked here, not only do we want to be a people that believe in and remember the creation, but the memorial of creation, which is what? Seventh day. And the second angel follows and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And we said, aha, what we have in Revelation is the prediction of the corruption of religion. The marriage of religion and state and false religion. And so what we don't want to be is an adulterous people. We want to be a pure people. And what that means is what I've already said. And the third angel follows and says, verse 9, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lambs. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So we, we take the three angels' message. In fact, it was the actual symbol of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the logo, for many, 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 many years. And we, we pull all this together and say, there you have it. Well, there are some uh, strengths to that. Uh, I don't want to just completely throw out the idea that there's a biblical remnant. And there are some weaknesses to that. And some of the weaknesses that we might encounter have to do with the effect that that kind of thinking ultimately has had on us and has on us. The major effect that I see is negative. Because the effect isn't one to remind us that we're part of a remnant at a particular point in time, just as there have been past remnants, and may in fact, we don't know, we suppose not, but maybe future remnants. 
the, the first and predominant weakness is that it lulls us into thinking that if we will keep the seventh-day Sabbath and if we will accept the notion of the prophetic gift of Ellen White, that those two things combined will save us. That may be a bit strong, but that is for some the net effect of, of that particular doctrine. And it lulls us into a sense of false security. Because our security is not in Sabbath. And our security is not in spirit of prophecy, whether we identify that as the Holy Spirit who brings the spiritual gift of prophecy, of which we think Ellen White was an example, or whether we're talking about the spirit of prophecy as it was kind of colloquially understood, Ellen White, and identifying somehow Seventh-day Adventists. The second thing that's problematic about it is the sort of sectarian nature of the claim. I think it's naive, personally, it's maybe a little strong, but I think it's naive to think that a corporate body at a particular point in time gets to be the sole recipient of a title like Remnant when the broad strokes of prophetic word in Revelation and Daniel point to a group of God's people left over at the end of time. And even Jesus says that there are sheep who are not of the fold of Israel that the disciples didn't know. And I think to suggest that there wouldn't be sheep not of the fold of Adventism uh, is a dangerous presupposition. I think most of you are probably there with me on this. I think most of you have already thought about this and agree with that. And those of, some of you may be struggling a little bit, and now's not the time for dialogue, but we can certainly talk about that any time you'd like. What I want to focus in on is not the validity or invalidity of the concept. There is a biblical remnant, always. Let's just kind of review. If you do your word study, you'll find that the first concept of remnant is Genesis 45, and it's Joseph, I did this last week, Joseph talking to his brothers. And he's saying, in this time of famine, in this time of starvation, in this time of tremendous want in the world in which we live, God has preserved you as a remnant. He's brought you to Egypt that a remnant of his people might survive. That you might go through this very hard, this very difficult time. That you might endure, that you might survive. That's the opening concept of remnant, at least as it exists in English in the NIV. We find stories in Kings and Chronicles and Ezra. We find stories that go back even to the golden age of Israel, around 1700 A.D. and 1100 A.D. And many of the stories of remnant are much, much closer to our current time. They're 700 to 500 A.D., They're stories of fall and redemption. They're stories of a people scattered and a people gathered. They're stories of destruction and rebuilding. Constant cycles. Constant cycles. The remnant is that which is left over and is faithful. 
Jacob and his sons were a remnant of those who believed in the true God. Do you remember the story? Abraham is in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram, he was known as, not Abraham at that time. He marries his half-sister, Sarai, a beautiful woman. They live in Ur for a time, and it becomes clear that God is calling them to another place. Ur is a heathen city, an idolatrous city, a place of great commerce. It is a great city. And he decides to leave at the direction of God to inherit a promised land that he knows not. He has his variations and and changes of course on the way. You can read those stories. And he camps for long periods of time where he is not ultimately going to live. But in the end... He receives an inheritance. He finds a place and begins to build a people. Isaac is the fulfillment of another promise in his old age. And Isaac bears Jacob and Esau. And Jacob becomes the priest of the family carrying forth the line. And from two wives and two mistresses, or concubines, uh, servants of his wives, he brings forth these twelve Sons who are the twelve tribes of Israel, and a remnant of them, they will survive by going to Egypt's land. And Joseph will prepare an inheritance for them there for a season until they fall into captivity and are abused and mistreated and led by Moses again out. An ignorant and debased people at that point. And God will preserve a remnant of them, a very small remnant of them, to see the promised land. Caleb and Joshua. In the promised land, they will take over the land, but not completely. And there will be battles, and there will be problems with uh, idolatry and intermarriage, and there will be problems with many things through the years. And God will prophetically punish them with invading armies with misfortunes. At least that's how the scriptures see it and record it. And a small group will always remain faithful. Do you remember Elijah? He complains to the Lord in exhaustion after he's just killed 300 priests of Baal, watched the bull, the wood, the stones, the water all burn by fire after he's challenged the religious establishment of Jezebel and won. He's exhausted and he's running from this woman. And he collapses and he talks to God. He says, here I am and no one in Israel believes but me. I'm the only one. (laughs) Guilty. Have you ever said that? I bet you have. Everybody at work is rotten, Lord. I'm the only honest one. Why do the wicked prosper? You've said something to this effect. Only me, Lord, only me. And Elijah collapses exhausted. Only me, Lord. And what does God say? 
no Elijah. In Israel, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have a remnant. I have a remnant. It's such a story. After Israel has fallen, after Judah has fallen, after the kingdoms of Babylonia and into Medo-Persia, finally a proclamation will, will be given for a remnant to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they'll struggle. They'll start to build it up and some will come and tear it down. Some will be killed. It's a tough time. But the remnant continues to focus on a place where the presence of the Lord will be, where they can worship in spirit and in truth, where God can bless his people once again, and where this remnant can be a seed that multiplies again into something great. And this is the Old Testament concept of remnant that runs through verse after verse after verse of Scripture. And I've wanted to focus on this because rather than carrying out of this place a false bravado of triumphalism, believe this, believe this, sign on the line here and you're in the club, what I would love for us as people to embrace is the fact that God always has a people, visible or invisible. In Elijah's case, he knew not of the 7,000 who had not bent the knee to Baal. God always has a people who are true of heart. And I believe we have the privilege, if we choose, of being counted among them. I'm not excluding anybody in this room. But I'm telling you, I'm not going the other way either. I'm not excluding anybody out there either. He gets to decide who that is. And that remnant is a people with characteristics that are, are uncommon. In Revelation, it identifies those who keep the commandments of God. You know, that may mean the Sabbath, but it also means all of the others. And what that means in broader strokes for us as Christians is something really difficult and really profound. You see, Jesus summarized the commandments, did he not? Do you remember the synthesis he gave? Love God supremely and what? Your neighbor as yourself. I will tell you, I believe that a remnant people of God will fulfill that. They will love God supremely and it will be evident that they love him supremely because they will love their neighbors as they love themselves. They will be a thoroughly giving, unselfish people. They will be a people who are so focused on the goodness and grace of God in their lives that it will pour out in goodness and grace to those around them. 
They will be a forgiven people and a forgiving people. They will be a people true in heart and mind and purpose. And they will have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. I'm not ashamed of the three angels' message. I know many of us think it ought to be preached a lot more often. The problem is that we usually preach it to ourselves. It needs to be presented in a way that the world can understand. But the testimony of Jesus has to be about the true Jesus. The Jesus who lived an inverted sort of reality where the things that we value are not of value. Money, power, prestige, status, things, bling. That's the sort of superficial world we live in of values. And Jesus says, no, none of those things count. If you want to be the greatest, you're the servant of everybody. It's an upside-down reality in which the poor are blessed and those who mourn are blessed. And the meek inherit the earth, not the strong. It's a world in which everything is turned on its ear because the reign of God has come. If we have the testimony about Jesus, it's going to be about a Savior who is God, fully, eternally God. Was with God, created, redeemed by a condescending act of taking on human form. Creator taking on creation form. And giving himself up to suffer and to die, as the song was about, in unimaginable agony. Surrendering for that moment that life which is within. Being himself a life source. And sleeping in the grave. Tasting death, as the scriptures say, so that you and I don't have to. Only he dies for sin. We die because of sin. Did you catch the difference? When we speak the testimony of Jesus, it's going to be about a person who wasn't just a good man, wasn't just an interesting teacher, wasn't just a minority rabbi or even an unofficial rabbi, perhaps, in a small state in an obscure place 2,000 years ago. It's going to be about the God-man who came, who taught, who loved who died, who was resurrected, who was glorified, who sits at the right hand of God, and who judges the world. It's going to be a gospel that encompasses the whole of who Christ is in the fullness of who he is. And it's, that testimony is, is going to be the spirit of prophecy. I have... Uh, some ambiguities about what that means if I'm really honest, but I have some ideas for you. I think because it's translated with a small s, the notion that it is the Holy Spirit is possible, but 
diminished some. If it had a big S, spirit of prophecy, I think it would be clear to me. But we also know that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts of the Spirit, and one of those gifts of the Spirit is the gift of prophecy. Our friends, the Pentecostals, make a big deal out of the gift of what? Tongues, ecstatic speech, glossolalia. But what Corinthians says should be our prayer and priority is the gift of what? Thank you. Prophecy. We want to pigeonhole that gift, assign it to a few Old Testament characters and to a woman who lived in the 1800s and early 1900s, and we want to close the door on it and say, that's it. And in the meantime, we've martyred numerous prophets. Oh, mark my words. We have. And we've... we've whitewashed their tombs as the Pharisees did and said, if we had lived in the time of our fathers, we wouldn't have done this. You see, the spirit of prophecy is a living spirit. The gift goes on. It isn't just for a few. We may not have canonized prophets in the contemporary age. But the gift goes on. And the prophetic gift goes on to guide and inspire and lead and correct the church. And we're so resistant, and we should be in part. I'm not talking about these nutcases who think they're the reincarnation of Ellen White and write like her and talk like her and send out like, don't, don't give me any of that. That is no profit today, let me tell you. Yeah, we, don't even have, we don't even have to go there. Please don't be sucked in by that stuff. Go, go to a seance or something if you believe people are channeling Ellen White. You, that's not an Adventist thing. That's of some other spirit. That's... Sorry. No. We take the counsel and instruction we're given, and we continue to listen, and we continue to move, we continue to pay attention to what God, and the Spirit of God, and the Son, and what they're saying to us individually and as a people. And most of all, I'm going to leave you with this, the quality that we're going to have is one that's hard to come by. It's called endurance. Endurance. What that means to me is when the dog dies when a much closer loved one dies, when bankruptcy knocks at the door, when a job is lost, when tough decisions have to be made between honoring God and honoring men, When we feel like we have been abandoned and our prayers are not heard. When the going is so tough we would crumble. When people say terrible things about us that aren't true. 
God help us if they're saying terrible things about us that are. When we have rifts relationally that have developed because we're not understood and we've made every effort to bridge those. When our spirits have been trampled, we believe. We keep going. We don't let go of God and we don't let go of faith and we don't let go of grace. They become our heart's song. That's endurance. The saints endure. They stay faithful to God come hell or high water. They don't give up. Not even in the end crisis. Not even when faced with death. Like Job, they will say, though worms eat this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Let's adopt an attitude of brokenness. And let us as a church support one another in grace. And let's be the people who endure. Not a people with a vacant triumphalism and a false smugness based in a proof text that we have put one with another. Am I offending you? In a way, I hope so. Because I want us to be the people of Jesus Christ who know him, who love him, and endure.